It's a privilege to meet you and speak to you from God's Word. So, greetings from Rhode Island. Come up and shake my hand and you can check that off your bucket list. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's been a privilege just to get to know you. You have a great church and uh, I just love uh, getting to know the leaders here and, and individual members and feel like yesterday was a sweet time. Well, you may not know his name, but you know his face. On October 23rd, 2022, Michael McGuire got off worked, work and rushed to take his son to a basketball game. Nothing unusual about that. Except McGuire got off work at a coal mine. He rushed to Rupp Arena at the University of Kentucky. He was covered in dirt from work. He hadn't had time to shower from his shift or change. But he had something important to do, and that was watch a basketball game with his son. As McGuire and his son enjoyed the game together, a fan snapped a photo. And it quickly went viral. It even made it to the University of Kentucky uh, men's basketball coach, John Calipari, who was moved by the image. He said at a press conference that when he sent the photo, when he saw the photo, it hit him right between the eyes. He said, uh, my family's American dream started in a Clarksburg, West Virginia coal mine. So this picture hit home. And Calipari ended up giving his family, this family, VIP tickets. Michael McGuire's action displayed love to a watching world. So today we have the privilege of looking at another way that we can display God's love to a watching world. We're going to be looking at John 13 verses 31 to 34, 35. John 13, 31 to 35. And the context of this passage is that on Jesus' final night of his earthly life. And he's gathered with his disciples in the upper room. So Thursday before the Friday of the crucifixion. And Judas has just left the room to betray Jesus. So now, now the final events are in motion and Jesus is free to address his true disciples. And what does he say? It's found in John 13, 31 to 35. John 13, 31 to 35. Let me just read the, the passage here. When he had gone out, talking about Judas, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you'll seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. But a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also you 
are to love one another. All men will know, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. My main point this morning is, is pretty simple, which is God's hidden glory is shown to the world through the cross and through his people. God's hidden glory is shown to the world through the cross and through his people. And we'll be looking at this three different, three different points as we go along. So the triune God is glorified in the cross. The triune God is glorified in your love for one another. And then we'll take the third point and specifically spend some time applying it to the families here. So let's think about the triune God is glorified in the cross. Triune God is glorified. Jesus is glorified in the cross. So the events of the betrayal are now moving. Judas is gone and he has, the, the, the wheels are turning. And what does Jesus say? He says, now I'm glorified. And God is glorified in him. You know, I think we use the word glory a lot. I, was, I don't think we sang the word glory. Our church, there are often songs and we just use that word and we, we, we throw it around. We pray it often. But I, I'm concerned that we may not know what it means. And I think the reason is, is because it's used in a number of different ways in Scripture. And some, they're, they're related, but they're a little different. So that one of the first ways the word glory is used is the inherent worth of something, the brilliance, the, the excellence of something, the majesty, the perfection. God is glorious. God is glorious. It's, it's inherent to who he is. But second, the second way we can sing, we can use the word glory, is what I've called glory seen. So if the first is glory owned, the second is glory seen. We, we, we pray, glorify your name. What is that? Glorify your name. Show your glory, your greatness to the world. That's when it comes out and is seen. We see that in the Christmas story. The glory of the Lord shone all around them. And then a third way it's used, so glory owned, glory seen, it's glory given. When we, when we express that greatness back to God. And we, you know, we do this on a human level. So think with me of someone like Roger Staubach or Troy Aikman. Okay? They, they are, they were great quarterbacks. They had, they had greatness within them. And then on, a, on the playing field, you would see that greatness displayed. And then what would you do? You would talk about that greatness. There was glory seen, glory owned, glory seen displayed, and glory given with our mouths. The Bible talks about that God has great glory, and one day we will see it. But now much of that greatness is veiled because of our sinful eyes. Scripture says that the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The heavens proclaim, earth proclaims how great God is. Every new study of the universe, whether you want to go high or, or tiny into the plants, the, the cells, you want to, whichever way you want, all of those display God's greatness, God's glory. But in this verse, Jesus is telling us, 
that there's a way that you can see God's glory even more than by studying creation. And that's in the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection, and ascension. That those events proclaim the glory of God, the greatness of God, infinitesimally more. So scripture says that Jesus had pre-incarnate glory in the presence of his father and then that it was veiled when he came to earth in the incarnation and only occasionally did people see it. It was seen in his miracles. It was seen in the transfiguration. But to many people, he was just a carpenter. It's easier to see his glory in the transfiguration. But Jesus says, my glory comes, you'll see it in the cross. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now in the events of the betrayal, the crucifixion, ultimately the resurrection and the ascension, it's, it's going to glorify, it's going to display the greatness of the, of the Son of Man and of the God the Father. And then God is going to display his greatness and display the greatness of Christ by raising him from the dead, not just resuscitating him, but raising him with a new body as the first fruits of what is to come, destroying death. How does, how does the cross show the glory of God, the greatness of our God? In the cross, we see the justice of God and the love of God meet. It comes together. Who is this God that we as Christians worship, that we proclaim? It is a God who is perfectly just. He will let no sin go unpunished. So what's the answer? For him to come down and substitute himself. What kind of God does that? No other God. No Greek God. None of the gods do this. This is our God. Gaze long and hard at the glories, at the greatness of the cross, at the resurrection, at the ascension. You don't, we don't move beyond the cross, whether you've been a Christian one year, five years, or 50 years. There are more glories to go deeper in on the cross and the resurrection. If we want, Jerry Bridges said it this way, if we want proof for God's love for us, then you look first at the cross where God offered up his son as a sacrifice for our sins. We, verse we talked about this morning, while we were still sinners, God's, God proved his love for us. God proved his love for you. J.C. Ryle, in thinking about why is there evil in the world, he said it this, this way, by permitting evil, mysterious as it seems, God's works of grace, mercy, and wisdom are seen in saving sinners. Without the fall, we would have known nothing of the cross and the gospel. If you're here, you're not a follower of Christ. I'm new here too. But I've been welcomed and I know you will be welcome as well. And you need to understand that Jesus says the central event of history is his death and resurrection. The, the way if you say, I really want to know God, then you look at the cross and the resurrection. That we don't understand God and his greatness until we see the greatness of God in the cross and the resurrection. And I want to encourage you, if you've been, if you've been a Christian and an older Christian, 
uh, who've been a Christian a long time, each year, the greatness and the glory of God, the, 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 Jesus should get bigger for us. Can you pray as Moses prays, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Help me. It's hidden by my sin, and we live in a world where it is veiled. We see the glory of God in the scriptures as Jesus becomes bigger. But then Jesus abruptly shifts gears. Or does he? Because he's been talking about how the cross and the resurrection glorify the triune God. And now he talks about his disciples and his people, what we're we're going to do while he's gone. And that brings us to the second point, which is not only is the triune God glorified in the cross, but the triune God is glorified in the love of his disciples for one another. God's greatness is seen in the love that we have for one another. The cross and the resurrection are going to create a new people, the followers of Jesus. And and scripture says we're to get together. We don't just worship off by our own. We we get together. And Jesus' command in verse, you see that in verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people, everyone in Abilene, will know you're my disciples. How? If you love one another. We are, as believers, we are so loved. We are loved more than we can know. Paul prays in Ephesians 1 that, that, that they would be, the eyes of their heart would be opened. We need to know more of God's love for us. And then he said, because you're so loved, love one another. So simple. (laughs) So hard, right? Right? 22 times the command to love one another is repeated in the New Testament. And then you see all the other facets of love one another in the diamond uh, in the diamond of love one another. So encourage one another, live at peace with one another, greet with one another. So there's all these one another's which are really facets of the diamond love one another. First John 4, 11 to 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Love for the brothers and sisters is a mark of salvation. 1 John 3, 14, we know we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. That's in John. There's a church tradition which says that when John was an old man in Ephesus and he had to be carried to church in the arms of his disciples and at these meetings he was accustomed as an old man to say no more than little children love one another. Little children love one another. Little children love one another. After a time, the disciples wearied at always hearing the same words. Master, why do you always say this? And his response was, it's the Lord's command. And this, if this alone be done, it is enough. Why is that so important? Well, it has to do with the nature of sin. Rightly, we understand sin as rebelling against God. But Augustine 
And Luther also had an understanding of sin besides breaking God's commandments as causing a person to curl in on themselves. That, that sin makes, make, what, is the opposite, what is the opposite of the greatest commandment? Love God, love one another. So what's the op- what does sin do? Sin causes us, we love ourselves. We love pleasure. I have a friend with arthritis who physically her body is causing her to curl in. Well, that's, that's what sin does. So if, you've got, if, you, if you see people who've given in to sin over and over and over over the years, they, outward physically they may look fine. Their soul is curved in on themselves. That's what, that's what sin does. Well, why does Jesus say that this is a new commandment, to love one another? It's in Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus himself said the greatest command in Matthew 22, 36, 40 is, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So why is Jesus saying it's new? Let me give you three Three different reasons it's new. This is under the second point if you're a note, note taker. But three different, three different uh, ways it's new. First, Jesus gives us a new standard. He says, as I have loved you, a new basis. It's not love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is our standard for loving each other. It's a sacrificial love. It's a humble love. It's a self-crucifying love. It's a wise love. It's a washing of feet love. As I have loved you, Jesus, part of our sanctification, is growing us to love by his power, by his spirit, like, like him. Secondly, it's new because he gives us a new priority. So we're to love our neighbor as myself. Well, who is my neighbor? There are 8 billion people on the planet. Jesus puts the priority and says, disciples start by loving other disciples. Galatians 6.10 spells this out just a little bit. As we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone, especially the household of believers. See, love can manage multiple priorities. And so we, we, we love our families, we love the church, and yes, of course, of course we love the world. It's also new because it gives us a new result. This is how people know we're disciples. And I love apologetics. Apologetics is the reasons for the Christian faith. The Christian faith uh, really has more evidence than any other worldview you know, I don't, I've, I've said it before, there's a book titled this way, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. So the New Testament Gospels are the most um, uh, reliable ancient documents. If you throw out the Gospels, you've got to throw out all the classics in the, in the university department. The resurrection is the most testified to ancient event. I could just go on and on. Christianity has the best answer to suffering. Let's talk about that for a while. If you don't like the Christian answer, oh, well, these are horrible. So there's all sorts of reasons for the Christian faith, but what, G- what Jesus said is the reason 
is the way all men will know we're disciples is not because we have the best answers, but because we have the best love. Francis Schaeffer exhorted us, we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gives is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. Tertullian reported that the, that the Romans, even as they would oppress the Christians, would say, see how they love one another. See how they love one another. Supernatural love, Christ in me, has a new standard and a new priority and a new result. When we love one another, it's moving around intellectual barriers. Now let me give you let me give you just right here just thinking about three applications. If if you're not a Christian at each of these events at each of the events perhaps in the city you're going to find a crowd and there's a there's a shadow of friendliness at this crowd this rock concert or this event or that event but it's only in a healthy of church of Jesus Christ will you find a supernatural love for God and a supernatural love for people who are not like us. In a good church, there, is, there are people of different socioeconomic backgrounds. There are people of different educational backgrounds. There are all, there's all sorts of diversity. And what is there? There is supernatural love. Imperfect love, but love that comes from God, that, that moves around intellectual objections. As you repent and trust in Christ, he will give you that supernatural forgiveness and love. If you're a follower of Christ, though, I want to ask you this. Who's your biggest challenge to love right now? They might be sitting beside you. Don't poke him. We will be challenged beyond our natural ability to love until we die. So people say, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. That's not true. He's going to give you a lot so that you will come to him and say, God, I need your help. You may be hurt. You may have put up walls. But you know, when you put up a wall so that someone can't hurt you, you can't love them back. Ask God to fill you with the love of Christ for people who've hurt you, people who are hard to love. Jesus said we're to love our brother and sister, but he's also said we're to love our enemies. And sometimes functionally, functionally, a person in our family can really functionally feel like our enemy. We say, oh, Lord, when, when, when they come to kill me, I'll be ready to die for you and love them. It's like, okay, I'm going to put you with this person. And you're going to have to die little bits at a time. Can you love them? Functionally, they're acting like my enemy. And I want you to show them supernatural love. Sometimes we have to love a person who has hurt us and forgive us with the supernatural love of Christ. Is there someone afterwards you ought to go to and say, hey, can we sit down and talk? Who's your biggest challenge to love? And I want to give us a third application here also, and that is, that is to pray what Paul, pray, what Paul prays in Philippians. 
for love. He said, as he, as he talks to the Philippians, or he writes to the Philippians church, he said, this is my prayer for you, church, that your love will abound more and more, so more love. 2024, Southside would have more love than they have in 2023. That's my prayer for you, that your love would abound more and more, and that it would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Love is wise. See, supernatural love is, sometimes supernatural love is encouraging. Sometimes supernatural love is warning and admonishing. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. That we will have, you'll have more love and you'll have a wiser love. Maybe, maybe love is saying, I need to get more involved in the church. Maybe love is saying that I need to perhaps focus more on my spiritual gifts in terms of teaching or whatever. What does is, what is wise love say to you? I remember talking with a seminary professor who had a prodigal daughter. And he said, each morning my wife and I would wake up and we would pray, do we love our daughter today by uh, rescuing her and encouraging her? Or do we love her by letting her feel the consequences of her sin? The motive is love. The wisdom is, which one of these do we do? So the triune God is glorified in his people because we we serve a God who is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who is different and yet lives in community. Well, let me pivot and apply this to a smaller group. The triune God, third, the triune God is glorified in your love for one another in your family. Let me just start here by ma- making sure we do a sidebar here for singles, whether you're young and single or you're older. So there are applications as you listen to this. Perhaps you've got extended family. Maybe you have roommates now. And these things are true for living in the church. So, And God may call some of you to, be, to have families in the future. So here's some, here's some things to think about as we apply this to a smaller group of people, not just the greater church at large, but the smaller church. We need to realize that living the gospel in our home is a beautiful and difficult calling. The hardest place to live out the gospel is in our home, right? Who sees us when we're irritated? I've said things that I would never say to anybody else, but I've said them to my wife and, and repented and regretted. John 13, 34, 35, I'm going to read these verses again, but now, those of you who are in a family, I want you to think about your family. I give you a new command, love one another, thinking about your family here. Just as I love you, you also are to love one another. By this, all men will, men, or will know you're my disciples if you love one another. The biological family was meant to be the foundation of God's plan in the world. So we know the story of Adam and Eve. So they were the king and queen of our race. They were your great, 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 grandparents. And many more greats. But they're not, that's just not a fairy tale. That's your ancestors. And so when they rebelled, it was both a betrayal of their father, but it was also cosmic treason because they were the king and queen of 
our race. And you see the passivity of Adam and the rebellion of Eve. And as a result, sin is going to affect all of our relationships. Family life is messy. I mean, what is, what is a family after all? One sinner gets together with another sinner and creates other little sinners. I, I wanted to write theologically correct greeting cards, but my wife didn't think they would fly very much. Congratulations on your new little sinner. That explains why you may have grown up in a family deeply affected by sin, and you may have deep wounds and deep scars that you've never told anyone about. Because what was intended by God to be a foundation of love and joy is a place where sin deeply affects. But do you believe that God's ability to heal and restore is infinitely greater than your parents' ability to tear down and destroy. It is. It is. So none of us are, we are affected and influenced, but none of us are trapped if we've grown up in a home where there was sin, lots of sin. Well, how do we, how do we love in our families? I want, to give you, I want to give you four different applications here to, for, to think about. One, we want to love in our home with Jesus in mind. We want to love in our home or parent with Jesus in mind. From God's perspective, family is not ultimate. Jesus' kingdom is. We're surrounded by a culture that worships and idolizes the family. Maybe because of the pain of growing up. And I remember watching my youngest son play baseball. And I was just complimenting another dad. His son was doing well. And uh, he said to me, I just said, your son's doing great. He said, yeah, I love coaching my son in baseball. After all, what else is there? Isn't that what life's about? No, that's not. It's not. Baseball's great. Marriage is great. Kids are great, but they're not eternal. Only God's people, the church, is eternal. Our family is an important but not an exclusive priority. And there's times, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 37, Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So like concentric circles, my first priority is to walk closely with the Lord, then with my spouse and my children come after that, and the church family and the world. All of those are priorities. I can't push one priority out and say, I'll get to that in about 20 years. So rather than curling in on ourselves, I want to invite my children to join me as we love and serve Jesus. Remember my mentor, asking my mentor or, or a friend of mine to influence, how, how, how do I do, there's so many things I could do as a parent. And he said, I want my children to know that I live for something greater than them. We live in a child-centered culture. Being joyfully different than the world is having a family that's not living for the kids, but is living for the kingdom. So we want to parent or love in our homes with Jesus in mind. We want to parent or love with the Trinitarian glory in mind. We've already talked about this a little bit. If you're single, you get to you display the gospel. Jesus was single. Paul was single. We're going to be single in heaven. And you, you're single, you can display, I'm living for eternity. If we're married, we get a chance to also we get another, we get a chance to display the gospel as we're a micro a little micro model of the marriage Jesus and the church or the Trinity. 
Tim Keller said, the world was created by a God who's not individual or impersonal force. We believe God, the world was made by a God who's in community, who've loved each other for all eternity. You were made for mutually self-giving, others-directed love. Self-centeredness destroys the fabric of what God has made. God's put us in a family to learn to live for others, to display God's glory. A third application just under here, thinking about parenting and family, is we want to love in our homes with eternity in mind. If you're a parent or a grandparent, or even if you're single and you're surrounded by, by kids here, these are not just, this is not just a baby, not just a soul, not just a five-year-old, a 15-year-old, but an eternal soul that's going to last forever. And that gives huge influence to what you do. You want to make sure that the Great Commission is the North Star. And if you're in the weeds of parenting, you know, you're like, man, all I'm doing is wiping noses. That's what it feels like, putting on shoes that fall off. You know, you moms, you may be some of the church's hardest working disciple makers. It depends. It depends not on what you're doing, but on the vision. The story is told of three men who were stone cutters. As one man walked by these three men, he asked, what are you doing? And one man said, just cutting some stone. Another man, what are you doing? Earning a living. Third man, what are you doing? Building a cathedral to the glory of God. Same job, same work, different vision. The vision made all the difference. And God gives us little children so that we can influence them to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. It's messy and rewarding, frustrating, but it's profoundly glorious work. So... God has designed parents, grandparents, to be the greatest spiritual influence there is. We're preparing them not only for the graduation day, but for the judgment day. And so obeying Christ's great commission should orient all we do as parents. It's the North Star that we're, our grandparents, that we're, we're aiming at. So if you, if you realize that these little souls that God has given you, these are little souls It'll revolutionize your parenting. So, and we need divine wisdom to make a myriad of choices. And man, it just feels like it just feels like parenting is just about choices. You know, which what type of schooling? Uh, dance, soccer, baseball. You know, what? Just all these choices. We're praying, God, give me divine wisdom to help pass the gospel to them. J.C. Ryle said, precious no doubt are these little ones in your eyes, but if you love them, think often of their souls. In every step, in every plan and scheme and arrangement that concerns them, don't leave out the mighty question, how will this affect their souls? We're not able to give spiritual life to our children, and we're not ultimately responsible for their choices. If you're a parent of prodigals, uh, salvation is not by works, not by their works, not by your works. And so we're not ultimately responsible for their choices. What did, what did Jesus do wrong that J Judas walked away? Obviously nothing. But having said that, we want to do all that we can 
We want to do all that we can to pass the gospel. But let's be honest. Isn't our home the most challenging place to live out the gospel? You know? Family relationships, which God intended to be a blessing, can be a war zone. And that brings us to the fourth application, which is we want to love in our homes with holiness in mind. In God's grace, he gives you family members. He's given you your spouse, your children, uh, kids. He's given you your parents. They're not your personal happiness providers. They're your personal holiness trainers. God is using our family to reveal our heart. God uses the close quarters to shine a floodlight on my own little idols. So whether I'm a kid living in my home, trying to love my parents, I'm a parent trying to love my children, I'm going to see my own little heart as I go through that. We're responsible for our actions and our reactions. No one, no one can make us sin. And so how many times as a husband, and maybe those of you, your kids as well, or, or, or spouses, how many times do you need to call to mind, love is patient? Was I patient? No, I wasn't patient. I can confess that and ask forgiveness of my, of my family. Love is kind. Was I kind? No, I said some very unkind things. Love is not rude. Was I rude? Yeah, I was rude. See, all these verses that somehow we come in a church and we study, but then we, go, we put our Bible down and then head out. These apply in the home. These apply in the home. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. I don't know. That's Ephesians 4.29. You can look that up later and see. If, I, I keep looking for the little asterisk that says, unless you've had a hard day. Or unless she really irritates you. Or, you know, there's not, I'm looking for that little exception clause. There's not. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Or let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Let every nine-year-old be quick to hear and slow to speak. Let every 39-year-old be quick to hear and slow to speak. And slow to become angry. So in my actions and my reactions, I can see my true self and I can come to Christ to be changed. But not only that, one of the cool things about home is that it can train our heart. God doesn't want us, Christ doesn't want us to leave us aware of our sin only because the gospel empowers our holiness. And what God is doing in the daily grind and my micro choices is training me to love him and to love my nearest neighbor, my family. In the original Karate Kid, Daniel asks Mr. Miyagi, train me for karate. And what does Miyagi do? He assigns Daniel mundane work, waxing the collection of antique cars. Painting the fence, sanding his floor. Finally, the exhausted Daniel vents his complaint. I wanted, I wanted to be trained for greatness. But then Miyagi reveals how every mundane chore was invisibly preparing him 
for karate greatness. That's what God is doing with us. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Is preparing us, sanctifying us for glorious, glorious greatness. Your husband, your wife, your children, your in-laws, children, your parents, children in the home, your parents. God, Jesus has called you to love them, and he's training you to become like him. The triune God, one day we will see his glory. Our faith, we did sing this this morning. Our faith, what we see by faith, we will see with our eyes. One day that's true. But until then, God's glory is seen first and foremost in the cross and the resurrection of Christ. It's seen in a loving, supernaturally loving church. Forgiving, bearing with, serving each other. And it's seen in a loving family. Displays the glory of Christ. On October 23rd, 2022... Michael McGuire showed the world what love looked like. Going about the ordinary parts of life. And the world took notice. The same is true for us. Let's pray.